Well, good morning, everyone. Isn't it great to live in a place where you don't actually have fall? It just kind of goes from summer to winter. Boom. Just like that. Wow. I want to reemphasize what Ashley highlighted uh, with our Thanksgiving dinner. You've heard me say this before, but I really feel like this is my favorite event that we do as a church. Uh, And I've been here for almost 40 years, and so we've done a lot of things, and this still stands out as significant in the life of our church for a couple of reasons. One is, when I grew up, we went to a family reunion every single year, and it was a highlight to do that. But people don't have family reunions anymore. And very often, we don't gather together in a large group like this just to share a meal with each other. So in my mind, it's kind of recovering a lost art that I'm sad that it's gone. But it doesn't have to be if we are committed to coming together when we have the opportunity like we do with Thanksgiving. The other reason, probably even more important, is the fact that Thanksgiving is a delightful time because if you look out in the group of people that show up typically, it not only includes our own church family, but it is scattered with international students. I mean, there are people from, feels like every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so in some senses, it's almost a little glimpse of heaven (laughs) when everybody is together um, and, and we're loving and caring for each other. And so let me just encourage you to use Thanksgiving meal, not only as an opportunity to enjoy our fellowship with each other, but would you please make an effort to go find a neighbor, to call up Bruce and say, bring all of your international friends. We want them at this Thanksgiving meal with us. But make an effort to invite a stranger into a place where they will be known and loved um, as we spend time together at Thanksgiving. So I would just urge you to do that as we prepare for that big event. And by the way, it is no small event to pull off. And so your uh, response to us to let us know you're coming, to help out with the food, um, man, that would be greatly appreciated. Let's make this a special time this year. I would just ask that you do that. Um, This morning, I want to begin with an exercise that we walked through at our ministry leader meeting last weekend. I showed them this beautiful uh, picture uh, of a scene in nature, and and I asked them to kind of take note of what they see. Uh, As they look at this picture, what kind of grabs your attention? As we did that, we noticed things that you probably see as as well, just the beautiful flowers in the foreground, the blue and the red People mentioned the, the radiant sun coming over the mountains, kind of that kind of a misty air that uh, mentioned uh, that kind of sets the mood for that scene a little bit. And then Nathan was up here leading singing this morning. It was, I think, him who said, yeah, and then there's this bush kind of in the middle that needs to be trimmed. And I thought, okay, so you're that guy. That's good to know. It's really, really helpful. But then I reframed the question and I asked this. What do you see beyond the beauty of creation? In other words, what does creation tell you about its creator? So then we began to look and we began to see those flowers once again, and we were reminded of how creative God is. Just his attention to to detail. We noticed the, the sunrise and how it reminds us that his mercies are new every morning, just like that sunrise. The mountains are majestic. They remind us of his strength. And in the 
text of the conference, we talked about how easy it is to get lost in the details of ministry and lose sight of the presence of God. I wanted to revisit that exercise this morning because I think that the same temptation is true when we look at the Song of Solomon. It's easy to get lost in the details of this marriage that's being described, but then lose sight of the presence of God. Like that nature scene, when we look at the Song of Solomon, we, we need to look beyond the beauty to see something better. Because I want you to notice something, and you may have appreciated this as well. There's something unique about what's happening in the song. If you kind of pull back from all the details and kind of take this 30,000-foot view of everything that we've been doing, you'll notice a pattern embedded within the poetry. There's this cycle. It's repeated from affirmation to loving affection to intimacy affirmation, affection, intimacy. And it's not linear as in like a feedback loop. It's actually more like a spiral because each time it's repeated, it seems to elevate a deeper level of intimacy between the husband and wife. It it shows us that, that there's a love that's increasingly fulfilling, but one that is never completely satisfied. That's why the cycle repeats itself. So their marital love is absolutely beautiful, but it's pointing us to something better. It's it's as if it's stretching the limits of our desire to stir a longing for something more, a universal longing that only our final redemption will fulfill. Paul speaks to that in Romans 8.22 when he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for an adoption to sonship, the redemption of of our bodies. You see, we are living with a longing that only heaven will fulfill. So keep that in mind as we look at our passage this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come into this place among your people filled with your spirit and we open up the truth of your word, We would ask that you speak to our hearts, that you would actually stir affections, stir longings that go beyond the limits of this world in which we live with all its distractions and false promises, and that you would just maybe for a moment give us a glimpse of how your promises are ultimately fulfilled when that redemption is complete, when our eyes see our Savior face-to-face, when we live eternally in your presence, Father. Lead us to that place this morning as we look at your word together. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 6. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse 11. Love for you to follow along with me. 
In verse 11, it says, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. But before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back that we may gaze at you. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? Now, I promised to do my best this morning, but I'll tell you right up front that some of the verses that we will look at are, in my opinion, the most challenging in all of the Song of Solomon. The terminology can be difficult because sometimes the translation from the original language is not particularly clear. <laughs> even at times, as we can even see in the verses that we just read, it's hard to determine who's actually speaking in this scene of the song. And, and we could get lost in details uh, because there are lots of debates about who's saying what, when, what it means, but I don't want to go there, right? I promise you what I will do my best this morning is to, to give you what I believe is the most straightforward reading of this passage. And I think it begins here in verse 11 where I believe the woman is speaking. It, it follows her husband's affirmation that we looked at last week. And in response, she kind of wanders into the garden where their love comes to life. It's one of her favorite places to be. We've seen it all throughout the song. And I want you to notice that it looks like it's springtime in the garden again. You remember last time we were wondering, will it ever be springtime in their marriage? And apparently it is. They've worked through that difficult season in their marriage. And now their love is showing signs of new life. She's looking for the, the trees to blossom, the, the vines to bud, the, the pomegranates to bloom. And, and it seems as if in her imagination, she kind of gets lost in this moment. She, her heart, I believe, is, is truly filled with hopeful expectation. And she daydreams about being with her Beloved, because suddenly it seems as if she's transported to, transported to a completely different place. And instead of being in the garden, she's surrounded by chariots. And she's around all the noble people. This is the place where she expects her husband to be. You see, her, her time in the garden has stirred a longing in her heart. A longing to be near to the one her soul loves. And then there's this voice that calls out, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back that we may gaze upon you. And we're not sure who this is. It's someone, maybe the daughters of Jerusalem. They kind of serve this purpose throughout the song. And they're beckoning her to return. And apparently they, they want to gaze upon her beauty in their presence. But the wife seems to resist she basically asks, why, why do you want to look at me as I, like, it, like it's a dance between two armies? That's how you would literally translate that phrase. My Bible, it says two companies. Literally, it's a dance between two armies. And admittedly, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I get the impression that she does not want to be the object of their entertainment. She's really not interested in trying to impress other people. What seems to be clear from our passage 
is that she longs to be in the safety and the protection of the one her soul loves. She wants to be near her husband. Now look how it continues in chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, her husband says, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like fawns, like twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose like the tower of Lebanon which faces Damascus. Your your head crowns you like caramel. The flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. So once the woman expresses her desire, her husband now comes onto the scene and he, he begins to speak about his loving affection for her. It's almost like he rescues her from the expectations of other people and comforts her with his words of adoration. Once again, he wants her to know how he feels. And and I feel like they're back in the garden again. (laughs) Having escaped the suffocating crowds of all the people, they're in a place now where their love comes to life. And we get the sense, at least I do as I read this passage, that that they may be dancing together. Because instead of performing for other people, as they were asking her to do, she just wants to to dance with him. She just wants to be with her husband. I know Terry and I will do this from time to time. We'll turn on some good old country and western music, and we'll two-step right around the kitchen. I mean, we love it. And so maybe, just maybe, that's what we see going on here. They're dancing together in the garden of love. One of the reasons I think they may be dancing is because he begins the description of his wife with her feet. She's wearing sandals, which are probably adorned with jewelry. And he says she's like royalty in his eyes. She's like the the daughter of a prince. Moving from her feet, he highlights her hips, admiring her beauty as a masterful work of art. Where she says, you'll remember this, when he, she describes her husband, she says, your abs are carved out of marble. He says her belly is like a bundle of wheat, <laughs> which doesn't sound very flattering at first. I'm reading this thinking, buddy, you got to do better than that, right? I mean, come on. But again, when you look at the original language, that word that's translated belly can actually be used to describe the womb. And so maybe it has more to do with her youthful fertility than the size of her tummy. He highlights her breasts as two fawns of a gazelle. Her neck is like a tower of ivory. The the language he keeps using refers us back to this idea of royalty. It suggests that she's strong and dignified in his presence. She's not just an object of his desire. She is a woman of great worth. He says her eyes are like the 
pools of water. We know that because he refers to Heshbon. And in Heshbon, there are deep cisterns carved into the stone. So maybe like those pools, her eyes have this peaceful tranquility to them. And her nose, like her neck, is both royal and stately. The the movement of his description from her feet up to her head, in my mind, suggests that he's he's looking up at his wife. He, He sees her with respect instead of looking down on her with dishonor. She has great value and worth in his eyes. She's like royalty to him. In verse verse 5, he actually says that her head is like a crown and that her hair is like a royal tapestry, like threads of purple woven together. He is just so incredibly captivated by his wife. And and I think it stirs this longing for, for loving intimacy with the one his soul loves. Look at how it continues in verse 6. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of the fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth Like the best wine, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently from the lips of those who fall asleep. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Now, let's not forget, when we began this song this morning, it started with the description of the woman's desire. She was wandering in the the garden of their love, hoping to find her beloved. She was longing to be in the place where their love comes to life. And now we see that it's obvious that that her husband desires the same. So, So they find themselves in this place of mutual affection. But it seems even deeper than before. This is that spiral of deepening intimacy in that marriage relationship. In verse 9, he describes her mouth as being filled with wine. And then when you read the text, it's as if as he says something is followed by another quotation, which I think is from the wife. And, And she says, may the wine of my mouth go straight to my beloved. So what we see here is a shared desire. It's a loving embrace and perhaps a very passionate kiss. Each one giving themselves fully and completely to the other. This is a dance of shared surrender. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And in her mind, that's a really good thing. But as I read these words this week, there's something that I found that I thought was really interesting. This is actually one of only three times in the Bible this specific word for desire is used. What's interesting is that the other two times are both found in the book of Genesis, and neither of them are very redeeming. The first is in Genesis 3.16. 
When God is describing the effect of sin's curse, and he says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet, there's the word, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So I see this as we look at the context as a sinful desire. It's not something to be commended. It's more self-serving than it is sacrificing. It's a selfish desire instead of humble submission. It's a desire for independence. We, we see something very similar in the other example in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. This is where God is speaking to Cain, and he says, sin is crouching at the door. And there it is again. It's desire is for you, but you must master it. So once again, this is a disordered desire that came as a result of sin. Much like the first example, it's self-serving and not self-sacrificing. It comes, as we know the story, from a sinful heart of jealousy. But when we compare those two to what we see in the song, we see that it's not the same thing. Instead, in the song, we witness a desire that has been redeemed. You see, selfishness is at the core of every sinful desire. Hidden beneath the surface of that desire is the question that asks, what's in it for me? But the Song of Solomon is selfless, loving intimacy. A shared desire that leads to mutual delight. And it redeems what sin has broken. We see the beauty of God's design for marriage. But as we said in the beginning, it's pointing us to something better. Because remember, this is a repeated cycle within the song, a movement of affirmation to affection to loving intimacy. And that love is increasingly fulfilling, but it is never completely satisfying. It's something that's truly wonderful. It's a gift of God. But listen, it's only temporary. That's why I say the, the author is, is stretching the limits of our desire in order to, to stir this longing for something more. A, a place where our soul is completely satisfied. Ultimately, with the infinite love of Jesus Christ. That's the place where we find a, a love so rich and so pure that it makes all things new. That's where we are eternally satisfied with the one our soul loves. So as we finish up looking at our passage this morning, I want us to consider what some of the implications might be of how what we learned in our passage might apply to our everyday lives. Because I think this is an important reminder not to look for our complete fulfillment in the marriage relationship. And don't get me wrong. Man, I love marriage. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I believe it's one of God's richest blessings this side of heaven. I told my wife this morning, we are new empty nesters. And yesterday, we spent the day together just going from place to place. And I said, I could not imagine 
enjoying a day more than a day being spent with you. It's incredibly beautiful and wonderful. But our spouse was never intended to satisfy the desires of our heart. And I actually think this is good news for those who are not married, for those who are single as well. Because it prevents you from wrongly assuming that your life would be complete once you got married. And you just need to know that's not true. Because our life is complete in Christ alone, whether we're married or not. And until we come to that conviction, don't miss that. Until we come to that sincere conviction, we will be plagued with disappointment. We will crush, and I mean that when I use that word, we will crush every relationship under the weight of impossible expectations. I love the way Tim Keller speaks to this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says this, without a deeply fulfilling relationship with Christ now, and a hope in a perfect love relationship with him in the future, this is what we've been talking about, right? He says, married Christians will put too much pressure on the marriage to fulfill them, and that will always create pathology in their lives. But he goes on, he says, but single, too, must see the penultimate status of marriage. It's not ultimate. He says, if single Christians don't develop a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, they will put too much pressure on the dream of marriage And that will create pathology in their lives as well. So the key, I hope you see here, for both married and single is to find your true fulfillment in Christ alone. Living with the conviction that only he can can fully and completely redeem us, restore us, renew us. That he gave his life fully and completely for us. And that we will only find our fulfillment in his complete forgiveness, in his never-ending grace, in his eternal promises. There simply is no other relationship that can strengthen and satisfy your soul like Jesus. But the second thing I think this passage teaches is it teaches us to to see beyond the beauty of marriage, to see beyond the the beauty of what God created so that we see the, the beauty of his goodness within the design of marriage. This was his creation. This was his idea from the very beginning. And Sarah Clarkson, in a uh, podcast I listened to this week, she had this incredible statement when she said that that beauty is the defiance of disorder. I love that. Beauty is the defiance of disorder. It's how the goodness of God overcomes the evil of sin's corruption. So this next week, side note here. When you're out walking around and you see the beauty of the changing leaves and the trees, I want you to think of God's goodness overcoming the power of sin's evil because beauty is a defiance to disorder. And I want you to see God in those things. I want you to see the evidence of his redemptive work still happening in our lives today.
We see the beauty of God's goodness in the Song of Solomon. Because the selfishness of sin is destroyed by this idea of a self-sacrificing love. You remember that curse that created this desire for, for the woman to be independent from the man and for the man to rule over the woman. That's not the way it was supposed to be. But what makes the song so beautiful is to see how that curse is reversed. The, the beauty of God's defi- design is the defiance of sin's disorder. It is the evidence of God's ongoing redemptive work. And we groan, as we talked about in the beginning, along with all creation, to see that redemption final. Which brings me to my last observation. The song is intended to create a longing that only our final redemption will fulfill. It turns our hearts to the hope of heaven, where the work of redemption is complete. So once again, marriage is a wonderful, beautiful blessing from God, but there will be no marriage in heaven. We know that, right? There will be no marriage in heaven. And so until that day, God will use marriage to sanctify our lives, to reveal our sin, to refine our faith. He will use our marriage to to teach us. It's a a tool to help us understand this idea of a true self-sacrificing love. It's it's the only way a marriage can last a lifetime and be as fulfilling as God designed it to be. Because God ultimately designed the marriage to put the gospel on display. We know that because of what Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 31. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is the book of Genesis where God reveals his design of marriage. And then he goes on and says, but the mystery is great because I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So the marriage is a beautiful work of God, but it is pointing us to something better. It points us to the hope of heaven where our hearts and mind and souls are completely fulfilled through that life-giving relationship with God that we were ultimately created for and only made possible to experience because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Only then will we be eternally fulfilled with him, the one our soul loves. As 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 reminds us, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. It should stir a longing for the complete satisfaction that only heaven will provide. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, I do pray that you would stir that longing in each of our hearts. That on one hand, we can appreciate the beauty of your creation, whether we're looking at the changing colors of the trees or the beauty of of a marriage that is based on a self-sacrificing love, that we would see your handiwork among all those things, but even more so, we would look beyond it 
to see how those things that you've created tell us something about our Creator. That they stir in us a longing to be in a life-giving relationship with you because that's the only place that we can be eternally and completely fulfilled. Father, help us to see beyond the beauty to the hope of something better when we see you face to face and our soul rejoices in the one that we so love. Father, may we rejoice in that as we sing together. We pray this in your name. Amen. Believe it or not, that's what the Song of Solomon is about. It's giving us a beautiful portrayal of God's design for marriage. And, and there is so much goodness built within that design. But it's inviting us to look beyond the beauty of his creation. To see the character of the creator who has redeemed us by his blood and has restored us into the only relationship that is eternally satisfying and fulfilling. And there will be a day when that is complete. So turn your hearts to that place and look to him. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for stirring that longing. <laughs> At least you did in my heart. And I'm grateful for that reminder. Thank you for your intentional, creative beauty. How it really is a defiance of disorder. It is a restoration of sin's corruption. And one day that will be complete. And so, Father, help us live with the hope-filled expectation of that day when our hearts will be eternally and completely satisfied and fulfilled through relationship with you because of the saving work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we live with that even now in this day. We pray this in your name.